After the 2016 federal election, Tamina Watson helped create and currently chairs the response committee of the Washington chapter of American Immigration Lawyers Association. She's an immigration attorney at Watson Immigration Law in Seattle, Washington, who has helped hundreds of families work and live in the United States. She is a columnist with a national publication, a contributor to the Entrepreneur Magazine, author, podcaster, activist, passionate activist, advocate for immigration reform. Watson serves on boards, provides free legal advice at local clinics, and advocates for South Asian battered women. She hosts two podcasts, Tamina Talks Immigration and the Startup Visa. Oh, and she speaks, reads, writes, and sings fluent Bengali. She can converse in Hindu and Urdu, and in her spare time, She's an avid bird watcher and nature photographer. Please welcome Tamita Watson. <laughs> Thank you so much, Debbie. I'm so grateful and honored to be here. So did you always want to be a lawyer? You know, I actually did always want to be a lawyer. That's all I wanted to do. My mom shared some stories with me recently that when I was a child, I would play lawyer client with her because my father was one and I'd see that all the time. And apparently I would chop up little pieces of paper, just tear them up and then give it to her saying, this is your money and you pay me with that and I will help you. So that was really endearing. I mean, I don't remember her sharing that story with me when I was younger, but she shared it with me last year and it was very noticeable that that's something that I would do and here I am doing it. And so I'm, I'm grateful that the universe has given me this privilege. So what drew you to immigration law? You know, what's interesting about that story is I did not want to practice immigration law. I wanted to be a lawyer, but I wanted to practice criminal law and civil law. And I was a lawyer in the UK, which is a very different type of practice, if you like, from the United States way of practice. In the United Kingdom, you will have solicitors who are transactional lawyers and barristers who are trial lawyers, similar to ca Canadian law. In Canada, of course, one can be both a barrister and a solicitor, but in the UK, you're one or the other. Mm. And I trained as a barrister, so I have the wig and the gown, and that's what my aspiration was. But once I... I, I I completed my education there and I became a lawyer. Life brought me to the United States. I found my dream man in the United States, fell in love, moved here and had to figure out how do I practice law all over again? And immigration kept coming my way. And I kept saying, no, thank you. No, thank you. It's not for me. <laughs> and then the fourth time or the fifth time, <clears throat> excuse me, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I might as well just do this because it keeps wanting me to do it. And then I'll do something else after a while. But after the first day of immigration, I thought the universe kept sending it, sending it my way because I was meant to practice this area of law. How was that transition though? Because if you were practicing in, in the UK, there has to be quite a transition. I mean, some of the laws are similar. There's no doubt. There's on YouTube. There's a there's a fellow named Black Belt Barrister, who has who's 
got a really cool channel and talks about laws, but he also does talk about how some of the laws are similar in the United States. But that transition must have been interesting. And and when you came over, did you have to kind of get recertified? Yeah, such a great question. The transition was multifold. Even though we speak English, you know, it's it's not necessarily the same. You know, I had to, I'll talk about three different types of transitions. The life transition, where I'd go to a restaurant and ask for water, and I wouldn't get understood. <laughs> so I'd have to say, water, please. You know, just the way, I mean, my husband will tell you many funny stories about just going to a restaurant and not understanding what we're asking for from each other. You know, in the US, you will ask for oregano. In the United Kingdom, you'd ask for oregano. And I had no idea that's, you know, I was have a language transition. But that language transition was not just verbal. It was also um written as well you know the date you know is is we write months and day and year in the united states in the uk it's day month year and it took a long time to figure that out get that right also the you're you're substituting an s for a z now i say z by the way so i can get understood not z differences like that but when you take that into the legal field there are words that are the same but they mean something different. As a criminal barrister in the United Kingdom, um, the word remand would be used a lot to say the case has been stayed, you know, it's been put on hold. But remand in the United States, from a legal perspective, means that the, the case has been sent to the lower court. And so I would read a sentence while I'm studying for the bar exams and it would make no sense to me. So I'd have to have a dictionary next to me. So the the life transition, as well as the language, written language, that was a transition. But then how to practice the law was a whole new ball game in and of itself. I I had been practicing in the United Kingdom for about 18 months. So I was a baby barrister, as they call them. But in the U.S., you know, that meant nothing until Amal Clooney came along. You Mm. know, nobody really knew what a barrister really is. You know, so I started to not say that word because I would be confused with a coffee maker, you know, and it's like, you know, I'm like, I should promise you, I do not make coffee. I love coffee. I love the people who make them for me, but I'm not one of them. And so there was that. But, you know, how do I become a lawyer again? But I'd been studying for so long. I just didn't want to go to law school when I didn't have to. And so with a UK law degree, you can actually take the New York bar exams or the Californian bar exams. They are heavily advertised in the United Kingdom. So I knew about that. So I took the New York bar exam. And the reason I chose that above the Californian one is that New York has reciprocity with Washington state. And those viewers who are from the United Kingdom who don't understand the system here, America is the federal system. Every state has its own laws. So you have to be licensed in that state to practice law in that state. But immigration is federal, meaning that the law applies to every single state in the same way. So with a bar exam, you could practice a federal area. And so the reason I chose New York is eventually I could wave in, meaning I could submit paperwork without taking a bar exam, 
at least at the time, that's what the rule was, that I could wave into Washington state. Many years later, when I started to wave the, to do the process for waving in, they changed the rules and I had to take some exams anyway. But now I'm barred, if you like, in New York as well as Washington state. But it was a process. I, I was desperate and depressed for quite a while thinking, all I wanted to do be to do is be a lawyer, and now I don't know how I to, to how I can be one again. And yeah. luckily, the universe paved that way, and here I am. And of course, the experience that you went through helps a lot of your clients every day, every day. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because at the time when I moved to the United States, I did not necessarily understand any of the immigration laws. I was born and raised in London. I didn't have to go through it myself. My father was an immigration barrister, so I had some experience, but not the type that I had to go through. And when I went through it myself, it was quite a journey from filing the forms to feeling stuck in the United States to getting a green card and feeling the exhilaration of having that freedom of a green card. Also, I don't know if you remember, but in 2007, no, 2004 or five in the United Kingdom, there were a lot of bombings that happened in the oh, two yeah. other places. So suddenly, you know, being a brown-skinned woman, I suddenly mm. faced a lot of scrutiny at various borders. You know, even in Canada, my husband just proposed to me and we went to Canada to Whistler. We were so happy. We celebrated with Dairy Queen ice cream and <laughs> the movie and we're on our way to Whistler and boom, we're at the border and we get stuck there and treated very poorly. Mm. And I remember standing in that room where our queens you know, God bless the Queen. There's a lot of news going on in the in the U United Kingdom today. But her picture was on the wall in this border office, and I was being treated poorly. But I kept thinking, Gosh, we share the same Queen. We speak yeah, the same yeah. language. We drink the same tea. You know, it was quite the experience. And I had several of those. You know, both mm -hmm. in the U.S. and at the Canadian border. But what that did for me. It trained me in what I needed to teach my clients. Oh, At yeah. the time, I did not know I was going to be an immigration lawyer. I just didn't know. But the universe has its own plan, and I just went with the flow. Well, that brings me to this thought is lately we are, it's so disappointing. We're seeing this disenchanted attitude that people have increased aggression, the lawmakers and just citizens towards people seeking refuge. It's like everyone has forgotten that they're two immigrants, you know, maybe not directly, but their ancestors who came here maybe a couple generations before them were not born in these countries. So how long does that vetting process take for a new immigrant and for a refugee? And what's the difference between the two? Such a good question. But before I answer that, I want to share my book. This is called the Startup Visa book. And I wrote the first edition, actually, this one here in 2015. And the second edition came out last year. And the reason I mentioned this is, you know, as we just talked about, I'm an immigrant to the United States. And I had to 
you know, I fell into immigration, but I had to learn a lot about the history of this country. And so in this book, I summarize a chapter at the beginning about what immigrants have done for America, the economy, how they came here, why they came here, and who some of these notable names are that we think about all the time. We see them, we we just don't appreciate they are America, immigrants too. And some names like Nordstrom, Levi's Jeans, if you think about Bose, the headset. Nowadays, modern examples are WhatsApp. Everybody's using them, especially when you're in a distressed part of the world where communication is limited, all of these things are important for people to understand that the, the history, the understanding history helps us take to get to where we need to be. And so I think it's important that people understand that and remember that And that book chapter has some information. But the most important question you asked is what is the difference and how long does it take? And just to give a quick overview of American immigration. And I like to explain to my clients as buckets. There's a bucket called family immigration. That is parents, spouse, children sponsoring each other. There is a bucket called employment-based immigration. That's when an employer like a Microsoft or a Amazon is applying for somebody's work visa. And there's the bucket called humanitarian. And that's an, over, that's an overarching umbrella. There are different things within that, but refugees fall in that. And each of these buckets have a different timeline, depending on the relationship, the proximity of the relationship, the country you are born in. That's a huge, big deal in the United States. And in the employment section, it's, it's really what kind of degree is necessary to do this job and does the job require it. So there are many different factors that go into this. And the length of time for processing will also depend on, on these factors. Now, when it comes to refugees, people often get confused with refugees and asylees. The biggest difference between those two is that refugees are already coming to the United States with that designation, if you like. Mm. And that process takes years and years because they have to go through a system, excuse me, <coughs> where a refugee organization has to work with the Department of State and then they will essentially go through the procedures and protocols and background checks to make sure that person is coming with all the security checks done. Somebody who's an asylum seeker, and you probably hear this in the news and your listeners probably hear it and see it, is people who are getting to our borders and basically claiming that they need refuge because their lives are threatened. That process is called asylum, and that's mm. in the humanitarian bucket. Now, the timeline for the asylum is actually pretty lengthy, but there are differences in that too. Now, if you've been detained and you're in court, that could be a little bit quicker, quicker meaning still months and months and months while you're sitting in the detention center. And if you have been bonded out, meaning you have had bail for those who don't understand bond, you've been out. You, your case will take significantly longer, years. Yeah. And excuse me, <coughs> I'm so sorry. In the, in the recent history, and you mentioned your European heritage, we've obviously seen some international distressing situations happen in America as well as Canada. You know, and well done to Canada. You have really shown what a country can do with ex, ex, 
expedited processes for humanitarian urgent needs. America has done some and more needs to be done. But one of the things that they did for Afghan cases not so long ago, while there's so much that needs to happen on the Afghan front, the Afghan asylum cases are happening a little bit quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're mandated to, to be a qu- little bit quicker. So depending on which bucket you're in, yeah. you know, the time really fluctuates. But this is where I would ask people to look at my column in Above the Law. It is a national legal magazine. And I write about these trending issues. Mm, and cool. one that just came out this week is about green card renewals being delayed and oh. how that ripple effect is hurting citizenship applications, which is then also hurting not necessarily the application, but the people getting the U.S. passports. So there's a domino effect of these yeah. delays where one affects another. So if people are interested in learning what is happening on the ground because of the delays, how people are being affected, you'll find some stories, compelling stories in my column. And if the delays are not just political. They're, I mean, look at it, look at the entire universe today because of COVID. You had a you have a global pandemic that's affected logistics and literally healthcare and every aspect of our lives. I know here in Canada, to renew your passport, you've got to line up for almost a day in some cases to renew your passport. It's quite lengthy. Healthcare is strained to the point where it's hard to know if you even have it available if you get sick. But so it's it's understandable there would be delays in immigration on top of the normal delays. So I can't even imagine being an asylum seeker scared for your life and then getting caught up in where do they even stay? So many things, but I, I have to share memory. I went to a bar association event. It was called the International Bar Association, and they have immigration conferences. And this is several years ago, sort of in the good old days, if you like, where we didn't have so many different competing priorities that are concerning the entire universe. And I went to this conference, and even then, you know, Canada was always at the forefront of welcoming immigrants. So we had, there was this panel where America, American lawyers were speaking, and European lawyers were speaking, and Australian lawyers were speaking, and then the Canadian lawyer spoke, and everybody was like... Oh, we are so jealous. And so (laughs) that you're helping your clients successfully. And the moderator said, well, let's just all take a moment to just take that be jealous and then let's move on. And I remember that memory right now because you said to renew a passport, you guys are standing in a line for a day. To get an appointment, to get in that line to stand in America right now, you're waiting months. Oh my God. Months, my clients, I would ask you to read that most recent article I sent or published. They are, they are driving because this application for first time citizens, first time passport applicants, they have to be in person. And so they have to go to US post offices, which, you know, has gone through its own challenges. And it's taking months to get a slot and sometimes to get a 
slot within weeks as opposed to months, you have to drive three, four hours outside of Seattle. And so that is one the first step to even get that appointment. And then when you even pay extra money for the expedited service, where it used to take two weeks, it's now taking two, three months. And forget oh about God. regular processing. And so the even though, you know, you've expressed it's taking a long time, just know in the US, it's quadrupled that time, if not eight times the length of what you're seeing. Wow. So I do have to ask this because we hear nothing about it right now. What happened to those kids that were ripped from their families at the border and housed in these cages? What happened to them? Such a good question. When the Biden administration came in, they were looking for those kids. And I think in the early days of his administration, there was news that they had located a significant number of them. I have to admit that I, too, have not kept up with what that news has been. But I I believe that there are people still working on that. And so what I will say is that was a very dark part of the history of this country. And I want to make sure that I have another book. I'm just going to mention it. It's called Legal Heroes in the Trump Era. Lawyers really did step up. They did, yes. It was an example of what lawyers strive to do when they go to law school. And the moments that we saw with both the airport and the children and everything in between lawyers really made a difference. And of course, there are lawyers on the other side too that are enablers. And Mm. I hope, you know, there are things that will take care of those. There will be policy changes, hopefully. But the people that I have been inspired by and worked with, I am just so grateful that we had a legal community that really strived to uphold the rule of law and protect democracy. Well, I have... I just can't help but think that some of them were sold into slavery, but that's me. <laughs> I I wouldn't be surprised. And there are many conspiracy theories. I want to mention a book called, what was it called? The It's by Naomi Klein. She is an author, journalist, and she's a big climate change advocate. Disaster Capitalism. Disaster Capitalism. Great title. And- it's a it's a great touch. She researched it for five to seven years before she wrote it. And the book is about 10 to 12 years old. But when I read it at the, you know, in the 20, early 2017s, mid 2017, I was having these thoughts about how are all these tents going up? What what is the reason behind all of this? And as I was having these aha moments about or just, you know, thoughts about why this might be happening, just like you were speculating, I was having those myself. And the book really confirmed that there are forces out there that us little people don't really know about. (laughs) And the term disaster capitalism is essentially capitalizing on disasters. Mm -hmm. But the premise is that there are some people who are creating those disasters. Oh, I believe that. Yes. And but, you know, you and I don't know who they are and wouldn't even be in that sphere. Uh, You probably have a good guess, though. (laughs) We could have a good guess. And I think right now in America, what's happening with the Department of Justice and the unprecedented legal challenges that we're seeing? I mean, who knows 
yeah what happens at that sphere and you know maybe with time we'll learn a little bit more but i fear that we will never know the whole story yeah probably not there there is always talk about immigration reform in in both canada and the united states and uk and pretty much everywhere I don't even know what they mean by immigration reform when they say they have to have it. Other than for me, I would think that means no more two-year waiting lists for asylum seekers. But do you think, what does that look like? And do you think it would happen anytime soon? I guess there has to be a will first, right? That's such a great question, Debbie, because I think your viewers are all around the world in Canada. And I think America often, for some, seems like a shiny object because they are in much worse situations. And in fact, this morning I read an article in The Guardian about the new prime minister and some Brits feeling that I'm so glad I'm in the US. And so th there, there, are, there are good things and bad things, but to take just immigration reform, why is that important? And so just a very quick overview. In the 1950s, we had our immigration laws overhauled. You know, they, we had some immigration from 1920s where it was all about quotas. Let's not have this group and that group. And the, there was a lot of, lot of challenges because of the war that we needed people here. And there were, of course, refugees similar to what's happening now that needed to be brought here. So on the heels of those issues, as well as the civil rights movement, immigration reform was successful in the 50s. And at that time, it was really about... Um, you know, family unity. It was about making sure that people could be together, families could be together. And it wasn't necessarily about the economy as much, not about the skills. In 1960s, there were some reforms and 1990s is where we got, got our current categories that I sort of alluded to with the buckets. Um, but that's it. In 2001, we had some changes when DHS, you know, the Immigration Nationality, the INA or INS became DHS. And there were some changes through President Clinton in 1996 that were enforcement related. But the bulk and the, and the root of the, the laws that we have are from the 50s and the 90s. That hasn't changed. But if you think about the world now, we mm. have globalized. We are smaller in our communication. We are remote working. The pandemic has shown us how small the world can really be. The laws have not kept up with it. Mm. And so when you hear the word immigration reform, it's to reform all of these buckets, not just one. And the trouble with trying to to reform just one of these buckets means that all of these other buckets will be even more lopsided. And the way mm. I describe it to my clients is that the ankle bone is connected to the knee bone that's connected to the hip bone. If you want to, you know, fix one of these bones, you're going to have a different lopsided body if you don't fix all of it. And immigration reform has been necessary for so many years, but the pandemic really exposes the need 
for reform. Whether mm-hmm. you are a small business trying to, you know, serve your customers, you know, let's call it a small restaurant, or you are a nursing home, or you're a hospital, or you are Microsoft, you know, trying to serve the world with your software. There are so many vacancies in this country with jobs that are necessary. We cannot fill them. And we do not actually have a low-skilled visa category. So every day I'm speaking to small business owners. Just yesterday I spoke to a a person who runs a construction company. The day before I was speaking to a restaurant owner who is in authentic cuisine and he can't find workers. He can't find servers anyway, but he can't find the chefs he needs. And so reform is necessary for educational reasons, for health reasons, for the economy in general. And what what I love about Canada, and of course, I'm not a resident there, so I don't know every in and out, but at least from this side of the of the border, it feels as though you guys understand the economic value of immigrants coming in. You know, we have similar political attitudes on the one side of the fence that hamstring hamstring these things provincially. But yes, overall, we are very welcoming. We, we have a, the community that I live in is probably 80%, maybe seven, 75%, maybe East Indian and Muslim. Oh, how so, interesting. Yeah. Uh-huh. And yeah. so when I take the train, you know, in this neighborhood, it's, it's quite, I love, I love the diversity. And of course, if you want any ref, any restaurant, you know, whether it's Filipino, whatever the restaurant name, name the culture, we've got the restaurant probably in this community. So <laughs> yeah, and think about how enriched every everyone is, yes. not, you yes. know, and that's, that's why we need immigration reform. And it really affects every factor and every facet of our society and our communities. We don't have bus drivers. Seattle School District is having protest strikes because teachers, we need teachers not getting what they need. You think about our communities and societies, it's like everything needs to be reformed, not just immigration. Well, we have all those issues here. And because a lot of that is is set provincially as it is by state. But we do have immigration policies in a way we've got companies that bring in people under the table and put them in low level jobs and then exploit them and abuse them. And that is rampant. So do you see a way for those? I mean, we need those workers desperately. However, at what cost? And do you ever see a a time where those companies will be held responsible somehow? Well, I think they have been. First of all, what I want to say is when a business has to run, there are lots of business owners who feel desperate to do things. And I I don't want to put words in their mouths, but they're running businesses. And there are workers who need jobs. And so there's that happening because ultimately they're serving the consumer. But there are lots of businesses that should know better. And in the Obama administration, enforcement of these work working laws about e-verify or making sure that you're hiring documented workers was actually a big thing you know president obama you know bless him i i am such a big admirer but when it came to immigration he was actually labeled deporter in chief 
Yes. You know, yes. So that was happening during the Obama administration. In the Trump administration, you've seen it with your own eyes and, you know, there was enforcement going on. But there are many stories about raids happening at poultry farms and other, you know, agricultural and food industry related manufacturers. And what what really struck me at the time is that the previous administration really penalized those those workers. Yeah, but not the companies. Not the, not the companies, not the business owners who were exploiting them. So how does that work? Now, yeah. if you fast We still forward, need those workers. So I that's would right. we need to let them stay. <laughs> that's right. But what, why weren't the business owners penalized at all? They, you know, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, money, were they in money. that sphere? <laughs> yeah, was it? Were they in that sphere that we're not in? You know, I, yeah. I don't really know. But the answer comes back to immigration reform. Yes. One of the things that you may have heard in the news a lot, and often lawmakers will use this as rhetoric, is go back to your home country and then oh, come back and get in your line, get in the line. That's from the people that are immigrants. <laughs> that's right. Go back to your country, leave the country, come back properly. And, you know, I mentioned the 1996 law that President Clinton had put in place. That was very much about enforcement. And it said, if you stay in the United States for more than six months without status, you now have a bar, uh, a legal ban from coming yeah. back for three years. And if you have been in the U.S. for more than 12 months without status, you cannot come back for 10 years. Now, what that did was it entrapped all these people that cannot leave to come back, they have mixed race. Families, they have, you know, jobs, they have grandchildren, children, you name it. It's not as easy as just upping and going anymore. Yeah. But why not change the law to say, go back and come properly? People would like to do that. So while there are so many competing priorities of what needs to change in this country my if they if anybody said to me what is the one thing that you will change i would ask them to change the three and ten year bar rule because mm. that will help 11 million people get back into status yeah so is there an immigration story that gives you hope <coughs> so many so many. It's the people that give me hope. My clients give me hope. When I speak to my clients on a daily basis, I mean, that's why I started to, and I'm so grateful that Above the Law has taken me as a columnist. It gives me the opportunity to share the stories of love about, and ultimately it's all about love, you know, love for themselves, love for their families, love for what they do love for their country. A lot of people who come here really believe in the American dream, the freedoms that it offers, the opportunities that one can get if they work hard. It can't be said about all countries. There are countries where you can work hard all day long, but you may not have anything to show for it. But America can generally do that for you if you are working hard. And so <coughs> I am so sorry. I'm so sorry, Debbie. It's okay. But I do think that these people give me hope. And I think that is what will drive us. Is there anything the average person can help manifest to help manifest change and welcome newcomers?
so sorry, I have a tickly throat. The average person can do three things, I'd say. Number one, love yourself more. Mm. Because if you love yourself more, you cannot help but love others. So love yourself more. And with that love, let that have a ripple effect. (coughs) I am so sorry. I don't know what's happening to me. The second thing, as I'm talking about love, the second thing I'll say, take that love and advocate for the people that you care about. Because if you care about your neighbor, <clears throat> your family member, your the, your child's friend at school, if you think about the education that every children, every child has lost in the last two years, think about those things and how immigrants have been serving them. So mm. you can advocate for change and immigration reform. And then the last thing I'd say is just help where you can. You know, we all have skills and passions. Take that skill and passion and donate it somewhere where you know that you can make an impact because Mm. we all have a purpose and we have love and skills that we can make a difference with. Do that. Thank you so much for letting me interview you. This was amazing. I'm so grateful, Debbie. Thank you so much. And I'm sorry about my tickly throat today. (laughs) 